Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Many of you may be surprised by my guest today. David Frum is a proud conservative, having served in the George W. Bush administration as a speechwriter, where he is credited with coining the phrase, access of evil. He and I do not agree on a lot of things. But it turns out Donald Trump is a great uniter after all. Following on the success of his book, Trumpocracy, David has just released his book, Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. It's a powerful argument against Trumpism, and I hope you will all put your politics aside and listen. He has a lot of interesting and important things to say. Let's bring in someone who knows Washington well, conservative commentator and former speechwriter for George W. Bush, David Frum. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil. America is literally on fire, and it seems like President Donald Trump is content, in some people's views, with flanning the flames of aggression. Donald Trump promised that America first would not mean America alone, but America first has meant America alone. But over the past few decades, the politics of division and resentment and paranoia has unfortunately found a home in the Republican Party. Should you be defending a man when you know it will force you to own the ugliness that he spits out so often that you can't possibly agree with. Trump did not invent the alternate reality machine that exists on the right, but he's used the megaphone of the presidency to expand and legitimize Donald Trump consistently behaves in ways consistent with President Putin having a hold over him. I'm David Frum, a journalist and author in Washington, D.C. I spent most of my life in conservative and Republican politics. I served in the administration of President George W. Bush. Recently, I've written two books about the Trump experience. Both of them tongue twisters, Trumpocracy and Trumpocalypse, just out from HarperCollins. These books describe the damage the Trump presidency and Donald Trump personally are doing to American democracy. And I am truly passionate and committed to protecting democracy, preserving it, and bequeathing it to the next generation. Sorry, not sorry. David, thank you so much for joining the podcast. I think a lot of my listeners might be surprised that I'm having you on the show because you were a speechwriter and a special assistant in the George W. Bush administration. You're credited with coining the phrase axis of evil, which a lot of people on my side at the debate just detested. And you identify as a conservative Republican. I think let's start with how did you come to write a book called Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy? Well, thank you. And what a pleasure to be here and to meet you. As you know, you are quoted in Trumpocalypse and cited because one of the good things that has come out of the Trump era is this increase in consciousness about the abuse of women in the workplace. I've spent my life and career inside the American conservative movement. I knocked on doors for Ronald Reagan as a college student. I worked at the conservative think tanks. I published in so many conservative places. I was on the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal. And as you say, I served in the George W. Bush administration. I have been a lifelong defender of free trade, American global leadership, democratic systems at home and abroad. And it became clear as soon as Donald Trump entered 
politics seriously in 2015. He'd been pulling with it since the 1980s, that he was a threat to everything I held dear. By coincidence, I'd spent a big chunk of the spring of 2016 reporting for The Atlantic, which is now my main journalist to come, from Hungary and reporting on how the mm. leader of Hungary, a man named Viktor Orban, had dismantled Hungarian institutions. And Donald Trump was using so many of the same tricks. Viktor Orban in Hungary, he's not exactly a dictator. There are elections. And you want to leave the country, you can. You can take your property with you. But it's ceasing to be a democratic state. And that was pretty obviously the path that Donald Trump hoped to lead us on. And you knew that in 2015. Oh, yeah. You know, well, first, I knew a lot about Donald Trump. My, my family has a real estate background, and I had known Donald Trump a little bit in personal context. So I knew he was a criminal. <laughs> right. And like everyone in that world, I had heard the stories about his connection to dirty money from Russia. And how, in fact, that money had probably saved him after one of his many bankruptcies. And then you could see the authoritarianism and the corruption and the lying and the brutality and the cruelty of the very first part of his campaign in 2015, 2016. I wrote a story for The Atlantic in 2017, just after he was elected, about how he would try to govern and the things he would do and the things he wouldn't do, the things that were realistic to be afraid of and the things that were unrealistic to be afraid of. And that became one of the most circulated stories The Atlantic ever published. That led to the first of the two Trump books, which I published at the beginning of the presidency. Now I'm publishing one at what I hope is the end. Oh, God willing. I want to step back a little bit. You mentioned door knocking for Reagan, and I just would love to know how you think the Republican Party got from Ronald Reagan to Donald Trump. Oh, my. We could spend a long time on that, couldn't we? Oh, <laughs> it's a terrible story. Abraham Lincoln had a sense of humor that was way ahead of his time. Just listen to this joke he used to tell. Two drunk men in large overcoats are fighting at a bar. They're so clumsy that they manage to fight themselves into each other's coats. So it goes, Lincoln said, with America's political parties. Okay, so maybe the joke didn't age well, but the sentiment did. Historically, U.S. political parties have had a tendency to change their coats periodically. If you're having trouble recognizing the Republican Party these days, that's because it's in the middle of one of these transformations. Under President Trump, conservatives are scrapping pillars of the grand old party, embracing policies historically backed by pro-labor-type liberals. Think Trump's promises to rip up trade deals, his protectionism. On a separate track, he's ramped up anti-immigrant sentiments and stoked racial tension. The party hasn't done a complete 180. Its stances on abortion, gun rights, and revamping the welfare state haven't changed. But overall, the Republican Party is undeniably different. You know, I think politics is about answering questions that people have in the here and now. So when I became interested in politics, here were some of the questions that got me excited. It looked like the American economy was falling apart. The money was becoming worthless. Mortgage rates of 18, 19%. How could we put the economy back on a path to stability and prosperity? The Soviet Union was being so aggressive and arrogant and Americans were being held hostage in Iran and the United States seemed so weak and defenseless. How did we stand up for it? We had been through this social convulsion in the 60s and 70s, the civil rights movement and all the movements that followed, gay rights, women's rights. And, and while they'd achieved many positive things, they'd also left Americans uncertain about what it meant to be an American, and at each other's necks in a kind of way. And then we had a terrible crime problem in the 1970s and 80s, and no one seemed to know what to do about it. And so I was attracted to the conservative politics of Ronald Reagan. They seemed to offer answers to all of those problems. And I will defend, I think many of the answers were true, and many of those problems were solved. Inflation, we don't worry about that anymore. Mm -hmm. 
crime dramatically reduced. Soviet Union, not on the map. And those were real meaningful successes. The thing that happens in politics, though, is when you solve a human problem, new human problems appear. And if you keep saying, let me use the answers that worked on the last set of human problems on these completely new and different human problems, at best, you're useless. But there's mm. a risk you may be actively harmful. That's interesting. That's interesting because I think so often we use that phrase, history repeats itself. I mean, look at what's going on right now. We got the 1918 pandemic, the 1929 depression, and the 1968 race riots all at the same time. So it does feel like we are trying to solve old problems with old solutions. How do we get past that in a time when it seems like people are terrified to shake up the status quo? Yeah. Well, I mean, you are certainly right about the litany of grim things. As you and I talk, 40 million Americans have claimed unemployment insurance. It's a rate of unemployment not seen since the Great Depression. And we've got a wave of business bankruptcies that is heading toward us. I really feel for everybody in that situation. And many such people are probably listening to us right now. And I'm sure that you can feel terribly alone in that situation. And I hope anyone who is feeling hardship now knows that your fellow citizens care about you and are worried about you. And, you know, we're going to do everything we can to right this ship and, and replace the government and, and to get things moving again. Well, Donald Trump inherited a growing economy. Uh, he inherited every uh, aspect of American strength that he took credit for over the next two, three years. Um, the pandemic is not exactly his fault, but the response to the pandemic is his fault. Different countries have responded in different ways. The American response has been almost the worst on earth, certainly the worst among the advanced countries. And that is due to his negligence. The project of my book is to try to assess how much harm did President Trump do to the United States and how can it be fixed in the future? Do you think that we can restore American democracy with the media that we have right now? I mean, you write about the pseudo-information media enabling Trump. Elaborate on what you mean by that. I work for The Atlantic, a media organization, and it's natural for people like me to think when we say the media of the New York Times, CBS News, CNN, that kind of thing. It's important to remember for most Americans, the most important media company in the country by far is Facebook. And the second most important media mm. company in the country by far is YouTube. And Reddit is maybe in the top five. And these places may take some of their content from the New York Times and the Atlantic and similar kinds of places, but that's how Americans interact. And those media companies, which do not admit to being media companies and don't accept the responsibilities of media companies, they have very different goals from what we at the Atlantic or the New York Times do. I and mean, their goal is to keep you in their information system, to keep you on Facebook. And so the way they do that is by revving you up. And then they figure out what checks your box, what makes you upset. Mm -hmm. And they give you ever stronger doses of that same thing. And they lead you, it's like some Hansel and Gretel story. They lead you deeper and deeper into the woods, off the path, into the thickets. And they don't care whether you're left-wing or right-wing. They don't care whether your thing is guns or animal cruelty or whatever, whatever you care about. They're just trying to keep you, lock you in place longer, not by giving you what you need to be an independently minded citizen, but by what you want that, that gets you hooked, makes you outraged because that's the most powerful emotion in their world. Right. So yeah, those media systems are a real problem. And I think all of us, we're doing now media too. We can set an example and we can demonstrate different kinds of behavior. And 
constantly trying to appeal to people's better natures. Can we save our democracy? Well, first we have to, so we're going to. Somebody said to me, I just get so tired of hearing about all of this stuff. I get so tired of Trump. I don't want to see his name anymore. I just, I'm, I just, I'm just fatigued with it. And I said, look, I, I completely, I'm absolutely more time over the past few years thinking about Donald Trump than I personally can bear. Right. I feel it. But if you've ever raised a child, you know what it's like when your kid gets sick. And to sit by your child's bedside and they're sick, it's wearying, it's fatiguing, it's kind of boring, but you have to do it. It's your child. And you don't leave until your child is well. And that's the way it should be with your country. Your country is sick right now. And so no matter how fatigued you are, you have to stay there until it isn't sick anymore. You know, as someone that has thought about leaving the country, you know, in the last, I don't know, six months in a serious way, that kind of resonates with me. You know, my parents, who you know, they were part of the student strike in the 60s, very, very politically minded and aware people. I mean, that's where I got my passion from. They're tired. They're tired, but they're fighting the same thing that they were fighting in the 60s. So I have no patience for people that are like, oh, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to hear Trump's name anymore. It's like there's a generation that is still fighting for the same civil rights that they were fighting for 40 years ago. And it never really got better. I think it got swept under the rug. But it's just, you know, and I have these two beautiful kids and I look at them and I'm, I don't want to have this conversation with my kids at five years old. I told my daughter what happened to George Floyd and she said to me, wait, mama, that stuff still happens. She's five. But you know what? I'm going to have that conversation with her. And I feel like everyone who has children, five and up, needs to know what is happening right now and needs to have the conversation about race. What he has done in the midst of the protests, let's talk a little bit about what, you know, even conservative presidents have done in moments of crisis or crises. Mm -hmm. Well, people compare Donald Trump to Richard Nixon. Donald Trump is not fit to tie Richard Nixon's shoelaces, at least the Richard Nixon of 1968-69. Look, after the Kent State, if you're politically minded in the 60s, remember this, this terrible tragedy that took place at the, a state college in Ohio, mm -hmm. four students killed by National Guard. And there were convulsions through the country. I think that was about April of 1970. And of course, there are big demonstrations in the White House. And Richard Nixon invited people in to come talk to him. And it wasn't a comfortable session for him, but he listened. And not just that he listened, but he was seen to listen. How polarizing is Donald Trump? When you think of politically divisive presidents, Richard Nixon may come to mind. Or maybe George W. Bush or Barack Obama. But no president in the modern polling era, dating back to the 1950s, has had a larger partisan gap in his job approval ratings than Donald Trump. One of the things that all politicians should know, and all presidents, successful politicians know, is you can't please everybody. I mean, it's a huge country full of many, many different perspectives. And Americans are 
by and large, pretty reasonable people. They understand. I don't always get my own way. But what they need to feel is that the political authorities are listening and that their views have their fair chance. Just before President Trump unleashed police on peaceful demonstrators in Washington, D.C. I live in Washington, D.C., as I think I mentioned earlier. I have three children. My two daughters are here quarantined with my wife and me. We went together to go down to the areas where these protests happened just to see what was going on. If you know your Washington geography, we walked down 16th Street, which is the street toward the White House. That's the street where Lafayette Square, the big park in front of the White House is. And we we mingled with the crowd there for a while. Then we took the walk through the National Mall um, to the Lincoln Memorial and then doubled back and returned via the World War II Memorial back and ended up back at Lafayette Square before leaving for home again. We were there until about 90 minutes before the crowd was tear gassed so that President Trump could walk to St. John's Church. It was a peaceful crowd. They were obeying the law. There, there was a curfew coming at seven o'clock. They unleashed the tear gas at 6.30, half an hour before the mm. tear gas. And they were demonstrating. They were chanting slogans. You know, they were they were gathering groups, but that's their right. It's a little noisy, but... <laughs> right. Every good protest is noisy. Yeah. But it was peaceful. And you could see there had been some damage done the night before, including very upsettingly that somebody set on fire. There's a, in the Lafayette Square, there's a toilet facility and park service and a kind of classical architecture. And somebody had set that on fire, which is which is awful. And so that had been damaged. And there's some broken windows along the way. That was bad. Somebody had attacked the lobby of the AFL-CIO building around the corner. That, that shouldn't happen either. But when you walk through the scene of the damage, if you've ever been in Philadelphia on the morning after a Philadelphia team wins a yeah. league championship, that's yeah. worse. <laughs> right. That. Right. This is not like the exactly. Flyers winning the Stanley Cup. Exactly. <laughs> That's actually a really good comparison. You know, there's some people that celebrate after winning a sporting league trophy, and then there's some people that are setting things on fire. Right. Right. And look, we've had this lockdown. We have millions of bored teenagers who have spent way too much time with their parents and who, when there's an opportunity to go out and who have no political interest at all. I mean, one of the, I saw a vignette, just to give you an idea of what's going on. I mean, President Trump says this is about like anarchists. So I saw a vignette of some black community group and they had three 17 year old white boys sitting on a curb. And there was like this woman saying, now you tell the camera what you just told me. And the story was that these boys had slipped out of their suburb where they'd been quarantined because they'd heard there was a riot and that meant they figured they'd be able to steal some liquor somewhere. And they'd been caught by this community group trying to go to a liquor store, not because they care about George Floyd, not because they're Antifa, not because they're white supremacists, not because they had any ambition at all except to steal some beer. And this was an opportunity to do it. And the community group caught them and were pretty mad and understandably so. We're recording this interview the day after Trump threatened to use the United States military in America's states and cities without their invitation, which I think is a pretty clear violation of law and a threatened abuse of presidential power. So I guess the question is, does he just not understand the limitations on what he's legally able to do or he does he just not care? Well, there is some color of law behind him. But what he's disregarding here is he's law and also just the way we've done things. I mean, you do not unleash the military on your own people. Your own people. It's a different job. Military aren't police and police aren't military. Right. And police work is just different. What a good police officer understands is there are times when you have to act and there are times when you have to wait. 
There are times when you need to confront. You're seeing civil unrest that has to be confronted and contained, and sometimes civil unrest where people just need to shout until it starts raining and they go home. Those are things that police officers know that military people don't. Military people also understand their first mission is force protection, to protect themselves against the enemy. Police, their first mission is not force protection. They're not dealing with enemies. They are dealing with fellow citizens, some of whom may be behaving badly at that moment. All of them you know, are citizens and the siblings and children and parents of citizens. They all have rights that have to be respected. Military isn't in the business of respecting rights. That's not their job. And that's why we don't use the military for these purposes. But don't you feel like, I don't know, that the police, ICE, Border Patrol, all of these different sects have been... <sighs> militarized in a way to intimidate that to the extent that we don't feel like we're being protected by them or our communities are being protected by them. It feels like the whole idea of the police force has shifted to this place of where they even look more like soldiers than they ever did before. And I think that that does not breed any sort of trust or faith that our you know police force or anyone is really there for any other reason than to look strong and you know kind of make their own choices on who lives and who dies and what has to happen to keep the community safe it's really upsetting i remember being being a kid and like walking by a policeman and and you could see their faces and it was like hi you know and and you wanted to connect and and now, you know, you see a policeman and they look so scary. My kids just go the other direction. But here's the world we've built for those police officers. And this is our collective fault. About 100 police officers a year are killed in the line of duty. About half of them are killed by cars and about half of them are killed by guns. They are policing a society that is armed to its teeth. And that yes, and yes. every time that they pull over a car, they have to wonder what's in the glove compartment. Um, what's on the passenger seat. When you say American police are uniquely militaries compared to police in other democracies, that's really true. But it's also true that they're facing an armed citizen population that, that, yes. that kills police officers at a rate that doesn't happen anywhere else on earth either. So we're all in this together. That's a great point. One of the big themes of Trumpocalypse is, you know, when this is all over, President Trump and his family have to be held accountable for their corruption their non-payment of taxes, their money laundering, whatever it is they are proven to have done, they have to be held to account. And I certainly want to see some kind of moral reckoning with the enablers, the people in Trump's cabinet, the people in the media. But tens of millions of people voted for him. They're our compatriots. And we all have to find a way to live together and to forgive each other. So one of my big themes in my two Trump books, and especially Trump Trumpocalypse, is as we come to the end of this, how do we become one people again? Well, we need leadership, I think, to do that, right? We need someone that gives us hope and that allows us to dream again. I mean, that's in my view. I don't think, you know, in all of my journeys throughout my life, and I'm an ambassador for UNICEF, so I've been to countries that, you know, I was in Angola two years after the peace treaty was signed. I've seen what a civil war does to a country. The only thing that keeps people going is the ability to dream and hope for a brighter tomorrow. And when you don't have leadership that instills that in the people, I think you become a lot angrier. You become a lot more violent. I think that there is 
part of leadership that has to touch the heart and soul. It can't just be about legislation, and it can't just be about lawmaking, and it can't just be about law and order. It's got to be about heart and soul as well. And I think that some presidents have walked that line very, very well, and I think others just have not. I want to talk about 2020 because you mentioned a lot of people voted for Trump, and you paint actually a pretty bleak picture of of the 2020 election with dangerous scenarios if Trump wins or loses. So, you know, what do you think will come in either scenario? Well, I wrote most of Trumpocalypse before the pandemic struck, and I wrote and was able to rewrite the opening um, to take on, to take on board the pandemic. I wrote the book believing that Donald Trump would probably lose the 2020 election. And I, I thought that back in 2018 and 2019, mm. just looking at trends in the way women were voting, the increase in mobilization in the black community between 2016 and 2018. And I also expected an economic downturn in 2020 because of Trump's protectionist trade policies, the trade wars with China and other countries. I was worried too that he would stumble into some kind of foreign conflict, maybe a shooting war with Iran, something like that. So I thought he would probably lose. After the pandemic, of course, and the terrible unemployment, it's even more likely that he will lose. But it's not impossible that he could lose the popular vote and eke out a win in the Electoral College in the face of an even bigger popular vote deficit than he had in 2016. And it's also not impossible that he would, in the aftermath, try to stoke uncertainty about what had happened. So we have two crucial dates. One is voting day. That's the first Tuesday in November, of course, and I hope everyone listening to us will be registered and will vote, at least if you're over 18 and a U.S. citizen. Then the, about six weeks later, the Electoral College meets. And when the Electoral College meets, at that point, it certifies a winner. Now, at that point, the thing is done. It, once the Electoral College is certified a winner, it's very hard for anyone. It would be impossible. But at that point, we have a legal president-elect. And then it's just a matter of counting down the days until Inauguration Day. And then Donald Trump, if he has lost, will just cease to be president. And if he doesn't vacate the White House, we'll have a tenant squatter problem, but there's no question he won't be the president. No one will doubt that. But between voting day and the date that the Electoral College certifies a winner, there is an opportunity for a lot of mischief casting doubt on things, um, creating trouble of various kinds, maybe trying to prevent the Electoral College from meeting. Those are the kinds of things that you can imagine. And then even after the Electoral College certifies, and if they certify that he loses, he still has lots of opportunities to do things like direct public money to his businesses, pardon criminal associates, destroy records. That's illegal, but you can it can still happen. And even try to pardon himself. And it's not quite clear whether or not the president has the power to do that. It's a very controversial question. But he's going to, I think, try that, or there's a big risk that he'll try that. And that will then leave us with massive civil unrest and public recrimination even after he goes. You know, in your view, do you think Donald Trump is a conservative? No. I mean, he's... So what do you, how do you define him? He's a person with narcissistic personality disorder. But in the political spectrum, where does he fall? Look, over, over his lifetime, he has been a Republican, a Democrat, and an independent. Over his lifetime, he's been pro-abortion and anti-abortion. Over his lifetime, he has used racist themes and denounced racist themes. He doesn't believe in anything independent of his own ego and appetite. A president who puts re-election above the country's interests, says Bolton, and makes decisions for personal gain leading Bolton to a stunning conclusion. You described the president as erratic, foolish, behaved irrationally, bizarrely. You can't leave him alone for a minute. 
He saw conspiracies behind rocks and was stunningly uninformed. He couldn't tell the difference between his personal interests and the country's interests. I don't think he's fit for office. I, I don't think he has the competence to carry out the job. There really isn't any guiding principle uh, that I was able to discern other than uh, what's good for Donald Trump's reelection. One of the ways you test a person's political beliefs, what are the issues you'd be willing to lose over? And everybody, everybody in politics has some things I'm willing to lose over that. Uh, and uh, highly principled politicians have a longer list. Less principled politicians have a shorter list. But everyone in politics has something. Donald Trump, there's nothing. There's nothing. He would change his mind about anything, literally anything, because there's nothing in his life except his own appetites. Yeah. And and his his desire to succeed. He's got another special problem, which is every previous president, every president has had the love of family, the support of friends, most of them faith in God, many of them a relationship with an, an animal of some kind, a horse, a dog, a cat, a deep connection to a sense of nation, a set of beliefs and principles, some ability to walk down the halls of the White House and see the portraits of people and realize yeah. that other people before you have faced worse. There's Lincoln. It'll never be worse than that. Right. And you can look at him and draw straight. They all have had something and he has nothing. He is so completely alone. And he's just got his talking faces on television who flatter him like a, an infant. But he knows they're lying to him. And one of the things that's really interesting with Donald Trump is he never respects anybody who respects him. He's always looking around his corner. That's why there's so much staff turnover. You think, if you work for me, you can't really be any good because I know deep down, deep, deep down, I know I'm worthless. Ooh, wow. Yeah. But also, I think that there's a sense of you're going to fuck up. You're going to fuck up. See, I told you, you fucked up and now you're out which I think is just protecting himself from probably getting attached, maybe. I don't know. He's such a... It is very easy to become fascinated with the psychology behind what what motivates him, why he does what he does. Um, uh, but, but, you know, I'm ready to be over it. In both the books, I've tried to take us away from Donald Trump, the person, to Donald Trump, the system of power. And the titles of the two books sort of point to this. The first book was called Trumpocracy, which, I mean, from the word for power and the Greek word for power and say, look, this is not a study of Donald Trump, the man. This is a study of how he got power and how he uses power. And Trumpocalypse, you know, we use the word apocalypse in everyday speech to mean the end of the world, some disaster, zombie apocalypse. But literally, as in the books of the Bible, the apocalypse uh, comes from the Greek word meaning an unveiling, a revelation, showing you what is going to happen next. Now, in the book of Revelations, what's going to happen next is the end of the world. So that's how the things get get mixed up. But I'm interested in showing, here's what's going to happen next. And that I spent some time thinking about book covers. The cover for Trumpocracy was blood red because we were at the deepest moment of trouble when that book was published early in 2018. We are also in a central location of this new era. We are paces away from Comic Pizza, where <laughs> but for the nearest, please don't laugh, because but for the nearest grace and mercy, that would have been the site of one of the most horrible massacres of children in American history. And um, I, the gunman, I, he had this moment of rationality, maybe even goodness, 
even something more than that, where he did not commit the terrible crime he had come to commit. But, but for that, uh, this would be a central ground. And it is a, a reminder that lies, disinformation, um, this, this is a story that can be written in Bawadi as well as in Tears. The color for this book is a kind of sunrise or arguably sunset, you choose, orange and yellow. But to say that one day is ending and a new day is beginning because we're going to be in a different world very, very soon. And we have to make this new world better than the last world. Well, and the other thing that scares me is that Trump doesn't exist in a vacuum. You know, what about the GOP? The GOP used to be a party of principle who I hoped would limit the worst of what Trump, you know, would do or has done or could possibly do. But the exact opposite has happened. I mean, it feels like everyone in the party has disappeared. So where, where, yes, thank, okay, so there's one. Where are the Republicans? Where are the adults in the room? Why are they not raging against his huge expansions of government and executive power? He's offered them a devil's bargain. Republicans have not done so politically well at the presidential level. They did very well at the state level. You know, they did very well anywhere where you could win with minorities of votes or by stopping people from voting. They did well at the state and local level. But they were crushed in 2008 in that election after the financial crisis. They expected to win in 2012, and they didn't. And Donald Trump offered them a devil's bargain. I can deliver in a way that Jeb Bush and all those other people can't, and I will make it possible for you to have what you want. But The thing about that phrase, devil's bargain, is in the legend, the devil never delivers. He always finds some way to give you what he promised, but in a way you didn't expect and wouldn't like. And that's what has happened here. He has led them to a position where they cannot win in a fair contest. Their only hope in 2020 is to stop people from voting, and hence the mail charges and so on. If everyone votes, they know they're done for. So their only plan is make it harder for people to vote. But that makes a party lazy and backward looking because it means instead of thinking, how do we adapt to the needs of not everybody? It would be bad if a party got 100% of the vote. We're looking here to pick up 50% plus a few more. That's our goal, about half the population. So how do we start with the people who already like us and find a few more people who will also like us? And that's a great thing. Does that? But that means is you think, well, gee, you know, we've always been the party of, of business owners and most business owners are white and male, but we're noticing there are more and more business owners who aren't white and male. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, why don't we talk to them? Maybe recruit a few of them as candidates and let's broaden our appeal. And meanwhile, your opponents are doing the same thing. Same thing. The Democrats said, well, you know, we're always strong with people who, uh, you know, work for the public sector, but maybe we should try to find some people who work for the private sector and appeal to them. And that's how we write the ship. That's how we, you know, move forward together as a country is that each party is like trying to steal voters from the other by being attractive, by being friendly, by not insulting people all the time. And that's a very positive competition. What Trump has shown is, no, no, what I can do is if you, I can show you, if you just shrink the electorate enough, you don't need to change. You change the country without changing the party by stopping people from voting. And so one of my big concerns and one of my big projects in the book, and I offer ideas on how to do this, is that we have to take that option away. The option of shrinking the electorate, over. Can't have that. Now, go compete. Go compete. Because you're going to find right. there are a lot of people who are gay but think they're paying too much tax. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there, there are a lot of people who are 
minority, ethnically minority, but you know they think that the regulations on their business are kind of burdensome. And there are a lot of ways you can attract them, a lot of issues. And, and conversely, for the Democrats, they have to always be reaching beyond their natural comfort zone. That's how in a two-party system, that's why two-party systems can produce stability when they do, is that they they're always reaching into each other's coalitions. I mean, I totally agree with that. And I just do not understand how they are watching this man. It's just, they took an oath to the constitution for fuck's sake. What are they doing? We saw Sass came out, which was great. And he gave a statement about the walk to the church and the photo op and great. And we've got Mitt Romney, but where are they? They're just swallowing their country for their own success. And it just seems so nearsighted and so hurtful. It is nearsighted. One of the things that was said during the first two years of the Trump administration, the Trump people, many of them, my old acquaintances, would jeer at people like me. And they say, you know, you never Trump Republicans. You're not a political party. You're a dinner party. A very funny joke. And in Washington, it felt that way because by the end of 2018, pretty much every Republican in Washington who counted had made some kind of peace with Donald Trump. And then we had the election of 2018. And it turned out, where did, where did Republicans lose the House of Representatives? They didn't lose by losing more seats in Brooklyn and more seats in the Bay Area. Those mm-hmm. seats, that, that's it. The Democrats already have all of those seats. They couldn't add, they couldn't yep. win more. There were no more. Where the Republicans lost was they lost in classic Republican seats. In 1966, George H.W. Bush, the first Bush, wins a seat in an affluent area of Houston, River Oaks area. Republicans hold that seat from 1966 through Watergate, through Iran-Contra, through the Iraq War, through the world financial crisis, and they lose it in 2018. Newt Gingrich wins a seat in suburban Atlanta in 1978, and Republicans keep that seat same way all through those things until 2018. Eric Cantor, who was the number two Republican in the House of Representatives under Barack Obama and represented an affluent area west of Richmond, Virginia, that seat, solid, solid Republican, goes Democrat in 2018. The area, if you know your Washington geography, just south of the Potomac River where the CIA is and the fanciest shopping malls are, that had been Republican for 60 of the past 66 years. Mm-hmm. And it went Democrat in 2018. By the way, in every case, the winner was a woman. And they were not Bernie bros or Bernie sisters. They were conservative-leaning people, often with national security credentials, business-oriented, able to talk to their districts. And to say, you know what? You don't have to change everything. We just have to change this one person who is so unacceptable. Where are those Republicans? Back in 1980, about a third of the country identified as Republican. And today, about a fifth does. So yeah, he's winning a big share of people identify as Republicans, but they are a dwindling share of the country as compared to what they were under Ronald Reagan. I want to talk about Trump's tax cuts for a minute. Trump and the Republicans' only major legislative accomplishment has been a massive $1.5 trillion tax cut for the wealthy and corporations, which Trump signed into law one year ago. So after a full year, what are the results? 
Number one, Trump and Republicans promised the tax cuts would pay for themselves. Wrong. According to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, the tax cut has added to the federal deficit, which is now on track to surpass $1 trillion by 2020. I mean... This was touted as the crowning achievement of Paul Ryan's career. You know, it was, for all intents and purposes, the realization of the Republican dream. But you write that nearly 90 percent of those tax cuts have been eaten by Trump's tariffs and that it did not help the people who needed them. What happened? Well, the typical American household got about $900 a year of benefit out of the Trump tax cut. Trump started putting tariffs on imported goods, and tariffs are taxes too. And the result was that washing machines and dishwashers and cell phones and other kinds of goods, consumer goods, household goods, electronic goods, all became more expensive. Toys and clothes became more expensive. And the increase in the cost of those things because of the tariff, which is a tax, that was worth probably about 800 something dollars a year to the typical American household. And so there was no tax cut for most people because it all went to pay for other taxes. And the tax cut also failed to do the thing it was supposed to do. The tax cut was very focused on the corporate sector. And what it was supposed to do was encourage corporations to invest more in capital goods, more equipment, more machines, more of the tools that make new tools. And by capital investment, they would then have more hiring, that our economy would be more productive and wages would go up. And none of those things happened. And anyway, that's all yesterday's story. Donald Trump's claim today, he's like, I'm a great driver. What do you mean you're a great driver? You're in the middle. You're the cause of this 50-car wreck in which dozens of people are hurt and some look like they've been killed. What do you mean you're a great driver? Well, until I got into the car wreck, I was driving great. (laughs) That's his claim. Until, Until 2020, the economy was doing well. Right. Right, exactly. (laughs) You don't get get a prize for driving the car three quarters of the way home before the car accident. It's crazy. Well, I don't know. Do you think that the Republican Party can get back to being the Republican Party? Or is it permanently now the Trump Party? I want to talk to you about what's happened with the Republican Party. Um, There is no Republican Party. There's a Trump Party. We begin tonight with two leading Republican senators taking on President Trump. One of them standing on the floor of the Senate late today and saying, I rise to say enough. Arizona's Jeff Flake adding, I will not be complicit. It comes just hours after Republican Senator Bob Corker reignited his very public feud with the president. Corker calling the president, quote, an utterly untruthful president. I'm outraged at the lack of outrage, uh, especially on my side, the Republican side. Oh, I have a tweet pinned to the top of my Twitter feed that says, when this is all over, nobody will admit to ever having supported it. If he gets beat, and if he gets beat bad, and especially if the Senate is lost at the same time, you're going to hear all kinds of people. They'll tell you they were against it the whole time. I mean, that yeah, they, they, were, they thought he was unfairly treated by the media, but they were never for him. They were just against his opponents. And I, I think you'll be amazed at how many people who were, were against it the whole, whole time. Kellyanne Conway is going to reveal just how she was sick at heart every single day. She's going to write a book about it. Mike Pence was so concerned and so, you know, had so many qualms. You're going to hear he's going to write a book about that too. You'll hear from all of those people. And look, it'll be hypocritical. It'll be ludicrous in some ways, but it's also how change comes, that they are going to find an exit from this. And And then there will be new generations and new political issues, and we will have change. The Democrats were on the wrong side of the Civil War. The Republicans were on the wrong side of the Great Depression. They're only two parties. They have to recover. 
I want to talk about one of Trump's favorite refrains, and really his supporters too, especially the nuts in the QAnon cult. Um, and that's that a, a deep state is hiding inside the government trying to undermine the president and hurt the people at every turn. You call it the deep state lie in the book. What do you mean? I have a chapter about that. Yeah, tell us. So the idea of a deep state is that you have the formal government, the president, the people pass the laws. You have all the things that are there on paper. But lurking deep within the government, there's this sinister cabal, and they're not writing anything down, and they're just whispering to one another, and they're thwarting the formal government. When Donald Trump came to power, if he wanted to, he could have said, we used to be Ukraine's friend, now we're Russia's friend. Russia used to be a problem. Now Ukraine's the problem. He could have signed waivers. He could have signed forms. He could have changed the way foreign aid worked. He could have executed that policy. He didn't do any of that. Everything that was written down, everything that was formal, he continued the pre-existing policy that dates back to the Bush administration and through Obama of, we want to see a democratic Ukraine. We want to support it. We want to be friendly to it. And we are suspicious of Putin and Russia. So that everything that was the formal government, which he had the power to change, he did not change. And then he went into the basement and he began whispering and he began running a secret policy that he could tell nobody about. He was the deep state. If he wanted to, he could have been the formal state. He could have said, you know what? I'm changing it. But he didn't. He pretended to have one policy while secretly and lawlessly having another. He was the deep state. That's why it's a lie. He wasn't thwarted by the deep state. He was the deep state that was thwarting the written down policy of his own administration. It's terrifying. You talk about, you dive into this idea in Trumpocalypse about how fear is really driving politics right now on the right and the left. What do you mean? And how can we fix it? Do you think we can fix it? you get some credit here for how we fix it. Because, you know, there have been positive things that have come out of the Trump years. One of the things that Trump did, maybe his most positive legacy, you know, there are all kinds of everyday cruelties in life. And some of them are specific to our society and some of them just part of the human condition. Um, and it's pretty easy if you're on one side of those cruelties, not to take them seriously. The way women are treated in your industry and in all industries, you know, it's pretty easy for someone like me to not see it. But what Trump did, he said, I'm going to take all of those cruelties and I'm going to put them on a jumbotron and make them so big that you can't not see it. I'm going to mock the disabled. I'm going to be the, the a candidate for president. I'm going to mock the disabled. I'm going to be the president, the president of the United States. I'm going to belittle and insult and diminish and demean uh, and threaten and throw tantrums. You cannot, I'm not going to let you not see it. How do you like it? Right. Most people who are decent enough say, when I didn't see it, I didn't think about it. But now I see it and I don't like it. Yeah. He's also shown us just the polarization of our nation, which hurts my heart. And you write in the book that society cannot even agree on the questions, let alone the answers. But you also paint a path forward that could give each party, you know, victories and maybe change the grammar of the polarization. So what do you see the path being? The first step is we have to change some of the ways the political system works to make it more effective. Some of these sound kind of technical. But there are changes that would make government work better. The Senate shouldn't have to pass things by 60 votes. It should pass them by 50 votes plus one, the way every other legislature on earth behaves. 
And the voting system, which is skewed so much in favor of rural America, I mean, should make some more effort to treat all voters as equal citizens. I have some ideas about that. That you could do fairly quickly in the first couple of weeks of a new administration. And once you've done that, then you can work on some bigger issues. You know, that you can find what I'm concerned about is finding ways to make Americans feel like what they have in common is more important than what divides them. So the the healthcare system, it's not just about providing people with healthcare. It's providing people with a sense of identity, making them feel there's something concrete they get just for being Americans. You don't have to be good or bad. You know, it's not because you're a nice person or you scored well on a test or you have a good job. This is something you get just because you're American. And by the way, no disrespect to them, non-Americans don't get it. And again, not because they're bad, but just because this is the thing you get for being an American. You are in this system and the people who aren't Americans are not in the system. And suddenly being an American would become a much more tangible thing. And Americans would all feel they had more in common with one another, one another compared to how they feel they have in common with people who are not Americans. And uh, I think at the same time as you do that, that you have to enforce the immigration rules so that you, people can't just show up and say, okay, I've, I've elected myself an American. Thank you very much. No, no, that has to be something that Americans collectively agree, especially when you're giving this new, more valuable benefit of a healthcare guarantee. Okay, well, we get to select who, who gets this benefit. And by doing things like that and many others that I describe in the book, you can create a sense of belonging. And when people have a stronger sense of belonging together, they are less likely to engage in that kind of polarization that has caused you so much pain. I have horses, and there's this theory that if you bring a new horse into the property, in order to get the horses in the pack to accept this new horse, you've got to put them all in a turnout, crack a whip, and not at the horses, obviously, but just the sound so that they feel like they're in danger and they run together. Hmm. And... It is a an analogy that I use quite a bit in the entertainment industry, you know, on a set. The way to get, you know, a cast and crew to really bond is to feel like our livelihoods are in jeopardy and, and you know, whatever it is. My fear is that even through this pandemic and even through the Black Lives Matter protests, I would think that that would be enough to get us to run together and to see that we have more in common than we have differences. And I hope that we come out of this, in this Trump administration, in this Trump era, in this Trump apocalypse, in a better place than we went into it. We have to. And that's the only thing that I can hope for. And that's the only thing that gives me hope. What gives you hope? So many things. I mean, I, I have seen, I mean, I mentioned before this, this revulsion against cruelty. I think that's a real thing. That's a real change in American life. And I think the Me Too movement is sort of the center ground, but I think there are lots of others. But I think the thing that most gives me hope is in my pundit existence, one of the things that you get called on to do as a pundit, not a word I like, is you're, you're asked to make predictions and what's going to happen. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I always get resistant to doing that. Not because I don't have guesses, because when you make a prediction, you're treating the future like a thing that exists already, that you can see and make statements about. And the whole point to it is that it doesn't exist. It's made by people. And you have to shape it 
when I talk to younger audiences and they say, what, what, what can I do to make a difference? I say, get interested in something and then do something boring to support it. Join a committee, attend a meeting, listen to people who are not as well-informed as you, see if you can learn something from them and go through the formalities of democracy. Anyone who's ever sat through, you know, a neighborhood zoning committee deciding whether to let beer be served on a patio after 10 o'clock at night mm-hmm. <laughs> knows what I'm talking about. Um, that, you know, you go through there and there are arguments that some people want the beer to be stopped at 10 so people can get to sleep. Other people enjoy the liveliness in the neighborhood and recognize the need for the business to make a living. And they have it out. And through that process, they become citizens. We need more of that. And I think the best of what we're seeing, I mean, we're seeing terrible things in the streets. We're seeing looting and, and vandalism, and, and that's just appalling. And, and we're seeing violence and done both by police and by some of the people who are out in the streets, and that's appalling. But what we're also seeing is people coming together to, to work out things. And people who have one set of experiences, with one set of stories, talking to others who listen. And we're going to have to bring police people into this conversation and have them talk about what it's like to not know what's in the glove compartment of the car. And whether or not you will see your family that night, because when somebody reaches for their driver's license, you know, that just by being together in that way, we become fuller people, better people, better citizens. Well, David Frum, thank you so much for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. But over the past few decades, the politics of division and resentment and paranoia has unfortunately found a home in the Republican Party. This Congress has championed the unwinding of campaign finance laws to give billionaires outside influence over our politics. Systematically attacked voting rights to make it harder for young people and minorities and the poor to vote. Handed out tax cuts without regard to deficits. Slashed the safety net wherever it could. Cast dozens of votes to take away health insurance from ordinary Americans embraced wild conspiracy theories like those surrounding Benghazi or my birth certificate, rejected science, rejected facts on things like climate change, embraced a rising absolutism from a willingness to default on America's debt by not paying our bills to a refusal to even meet, much less consider, a qualified nominee for the Supreme Court because he happened to be nominated by a Democratic president. None of this is conservative. You know, there used to be a loyal opposition. While Republicans and Democrats never agreed on the major issues, we could count on some degree of thoughtful discourse. We could believe that the other side was principled and willing to defend those principles in order to have an open and honest debate. Not so much anymore. Trump has shown just how little principle what passes for the Republican Party today holds. How Mitch McConnell has been willing to cast aside all pretense of a functional Senate in order to cling to power with Trump. Not only can we no longer count on a civil and thoughtful debate under Trump and McConnell, we get no debate at all. We need Republicans like David Frum 
and they need thoughtful progressives like us. They strengthen our arguments, meet us in good faith in the middle, and while we might never change one another's minds about key issues, we can at least respect the other party. Boy, do I miss respecting the other party. Be well. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 